Thank you, Colin. That was inspired. Colin, Amanda, very, very dear friends. I've, you've heard this before, but the thing I love about Colin and Amanda, they gave me London back, so I get to come here. And I can't tell you what that means to me. I pray for them every day, have done for years. Well, Jonathan Gazzola, hi. I've got fans here. Here. Beryl, Karen. Karen was my worship leader at Westminster Chapel. Beryl, my secretary. I still use her. On the end is my publisher, editor from Hodder and Stoughton, who published this book. So she's here to represent my publisher. Anyway, Colin, Amanda, thank you for having me. And love Louise would be here, but just arrived yesterday, going back tomorrow. I'm here, really, uh, to launch my new book. And when the service is over, I'm going to stay down front. Anything that will help to get rid of them, I'll sign them. <laughs> so that, if that helps. Well, God bless you. Love coming here. Very special place. Hi, Nadine. Came all the way from South Africa just to see me, didn't you? I don't know. She's my only groupie. There's my groupie. Yeah. <laughs> Would you open your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk? Now, you that don't know better would say Habakkuk. But I am telling you, I had a word with Habakkuk. He told me to tell you it's Habakkuk. If you don't know where it is, you go to the book of Malachi. And Colin, that's the... Oh, he's, the rapture came. He's gone. Okay, I know what he's doing. He can't fool me. You go to Malachi and go five books back, and you are at Habakkuk. I want to read from verse 3 uh, from, of chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. It will certainly come. Though it linger, wait for it. It will come and not delay. And the next verse says, The righteous will live by his, that's a capital H, faithfulness. And then turn one page to chapter 3. Here are words that let you know that Habakkuk had a wonderful breakthrough. And I hope that this breakthrough can come to you. When you read this verse, remember that it was an agrarian society. They lived from week to week depending on rain, sun. And here is what Habakkuk said. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines... Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. May God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this, his most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to be upon every mind present, that their perception of what I say will be received and understood as you intend it, and upon my tongue that I'll be cleansed, that I might be your transparent instrument to say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. Let this be a life-changing word, and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This word from Habakkuk, why is it so important? It's important because it touches on one of the most common questions asked by everybody. You have asked it. I don't care whether you are educated, uneducated, whether you're intellectual, cerebral, or you, if you should have the simplest mind in Christendom. You've asked this question. Why does God allow evil and suffering? Answer me this question. Why did God create humankind knowing we would all suffer? Answer me that. Well, now this is the thing. When you know that God is all-powerful, merciful, allows bad things, which he could, if he wanted to, stop. Sometimes he does, and sometimes he doesn't. He lets evil things happen. The question is, why? Now, this is nothing new. And you might like to know that if you've asked this question, so did Habakkuk. Many years ago, he wanted to know. I remember how, as a little boy, Actually, I suppose I should say a young man, 10, 11 years old, in our church back in Ashland, Kentucky. There was this little kid, three years old, that we, we called him Butch. And we all loved Butch, little blonde-headed little boy. We'd throw him back and forth to each other. And his parents had just been nearly converted. But one Sunday, as his dad was driving out of the garage... He didn't know that Butch was behind the car, and his dad could feel a little hump as the tire went over something, and he jumped out of the car, and he had run over his own little boy, rushed him to the hospital, and he was dead on arrival. I remember, too, that when I was minister across town at Westminster Chapel, we had a Chinese couple, Benjamin Chan. He and his wife, Fung Ha, had a little baby boy, William, born with a hole in the heart. And uh, they said, no problem. When he's two years old, we can operate. And this is a simple procedure now. Two years later, uh, ready for the operation, I went to the hospital and anointed little William with oil, committed him to the Lord. The next morning... His mother, Fong Ha, sobbing on the phone. The operation was not a success. I never will forget the day before the most intelligent-looking face I think I'd ever seen in a child. And the next day, I go to the hospital, hold his little lifeless, warm body in my arms as we all sobbed together. 
He lived two years, two months, two weeks, and two days. Why? Why? I realized something that I hadn't thought of until just very recently. The two greatest men in the Old Testament were Abraham and Moses. They were the two greatest men. And who do you suppose suffered more than anybody else in the Old Testament? It was Abraham and Moses. I have said, and I have meant it, that I would rather have a greater anointing than anything in the world. I used to think it was a spiritual desire. I'm not sure it is spiritual. I want it so bad. I don't know whether it's natural or spiritual. This is all I know is I'd rather have it than anything. And then I think I heard God say one day, really? Is that what you want? And perhaps there's someone here that you would love to have a greater anointing than anything in the world. And then consider this, that the two men that God used most also were the two men who suffered the most. Now, the fact is that God is pure, just without any guilt. You know the old chorus, a God of righteousness, a God of faithfulness, without injustice, good and upright is He. And yet, when it comes to Abraham, in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is preaching before the council, he refers to Abraham and says that God promised Abraham an inheritance in the land of Canaan, but God gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. Think about it. God said, Abraham, go to Canaan. That's where your inheritance will be. He gets there, doesn't even get a foot of ground. In his commentary on Acts chapter 7, verse 5, John Calvin says, it must have occurred to Abraham that he had been deceived. You think, well, that's a, an awful thing to say. And yet, Jeremiah said, Lord, you have deceived me. Then when it comes to Moses, God appeared one day and said, Moses, I have seen the sufferings of my people, and I am come down to deliver them. And then Moses announced this, and the people were thrilled, and they were carrying Moses on their shoulders. And then Moses goes to Pharaoh and announces the plans for the people of God. And the next thing you know, the children of Israel are having to make the same number of bricks, but this time they have to find their own straw. It's worse than ever. And now the people turn against Moses. And Moses goes to God and says, God, you promised, and you haven't done it at all. I wonder, is it possible that there's someone here, as I speak, you are in the middle of the greatest trial of your whole life. Not going to ask for a show of hands, but could it be there's someone here right now, you're in the middle of your greatest trial. If so, I'd like to speak to you. Others can just listen in. Now, Habakkuk refers to revelation. By revelation, he means the answer to his prayer, to his request. 
You see, Habakkuk wanted to know, why does God allow suffering? And why does God even seem to be on the side of the enemy? Habakkuk said, I don't understand this, God. If God is all-merciful and all-powerful, why does He allow evil since He could stop it in a second? Why do you let this happen? Well, God says, I'm going to give you the answer. Write down the revelation so that a herald may run with it. And then He says this, the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false, though it linger, wait for it. Well now, what does Habakkuk mean by the end, the end? Well, the answer is, he means the end. By end meaning the day of days, still future. Throughout the Old Testament, they talked about a day, that day, great day, coming. And so says God to Habakkuk, I'm going to give you the answer. The revelation you want, the insight, I'm going to give it to you, but it'll be at the end. But Habakkuk said, well, that's not what I wanted to know. I want to know now. Why do I have to wait to the end? Well, that's when it will be, says God to Habakkuk. Well, what's interesting to me is that Habakkuk might have said, well, thanks a lot, God. I'm out of here. Don't talk to me anymore. I don't want to have anything to do with you. But something happened to Habakkuk. I hope this happens to you. Because at the end, Habakkuk said, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice. I will rejoice in God my Savior. And so, in a word, God let Habakkuk, rather Habakkuk, let God off the hook. This is what I mean by totally forgiving God. You say, it's okay. Doesn't mean you understand it, but you let him off the hook, and you say, it's all right. I love you anyway. Don't understand it, but I love you anyway. When I was a senior in high school, one day the teacher said I was wanted in the principal's office. I thought I was in trouble. But when I get there, they said, there's a phone call for you. I picked up the phone, and it was my uncle. And he said, uh, your mother has just had a stroke. She was 43 years old. And uh, your father is coming to pick you up and take you to the hospital. I said, oh, is she going to be all right? He said, she's a very sick woman. We went to the hospital, and I saw my mother lay there paralyzed. Over the next several weeks, my father, who believed in healing, invited people to pray for her. Five different people anointed her with oil. Three of them claimed, and this was the phrase they used, that they prayed through that God was going to heal my mother. Three of them said, don't worry, your mother's going to be healed. 
and that I'll never will forget one morning as my father was coming up the stairs to wake me up to go to school. He was running up the stairs and he was saying, son, son, I've got wonderful news. What is it? Your mother's going to be healed. I've just had a word from God. She's going to be healed. Oh, this is wonderful. And a day or two later, God gave me a word. <laughs> he did. I said, I know she's going to be healed. I played in the band. I played the oboe when I was in high school. And our band was chosen to play at the Cherry Blossom Festival in Washington, D.C. It was a great honor for a little band in Ashland, Kentucky. And uh, I thought, I won't get to go. My mother's sick. sick. Uh, she said, you should go. My dad says, go. Well, we know she's going to be healed. It's all right. So I take the train to Washington overnight. And the next morning, uh, I called my aunt, who happened to live in Washington. I said, guess who this is? She said, where are you? I said, uh, it's R.T. I know. Where are you? Well, I'm, I'm at a restaurant here just next to the station. She said, don't leave. Oh, why? Well, well, Uncle Millard will tell you. I said, no, what? Your mother passed away this morning. I remembered as though it were yesterday. I've never got over it. My dad was afraid I would lose my faith. For some reason, I didn't. Now, don't think for a moment that that experience qualifies me to preach this sermon or to have written the book that Colin has kindly let me introduce here. It's not that that qualifies me. If anything does, it's 57 years in the ministry, 25 here in London. And if I were to get you to guess, what is the most common question that I got in the vestry in 25 years? You think you know what it is? It was not the question, what happens to those who never hear the gospel? What that one? It was not the question, why does God allow evil and suffering? It wasn't that. The most common question I got in 25 years is why can't I get married? <laughs> I've got a feeling that question exists in this room. <laughs> Colin, you've got a problem here. Seriously, that was the most common question I got. Or they would ask, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Why when I rededicated my life and just did everything God wanted suddenly all hell breaks loose and nothing has gone right since. But the most difficult moment I had in 25 years in my vestry was a, a German girl. She was, I would say, about 40 years old. She had muscular dystrophy. She walked with a limp and apart from her speech impediment at a thick German accent. And she'd come in almost every Sunday, Sunday night. And I never will forget this one Sunday night, and yet it, it happened several times with her. After talking to her about this or that, just before she'd leave, she said, Dr. Kendall, 
why can't I find a husband? I just said, I don't know. I don't know. We retired to America. I heard a year or two after we left that this girl moved back to Germany and took her own life. Why? Why doesn't God heal me? Why does he desert me at my lowest point? Why, when I've served the Lord all these years, do I lose my job? And so, said Stephen, Acts chapter 7, verse 5, God gave Abraham no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he would have it. Explain that to me. Explain this to me. In Hebrews chapter 11, which, as most of you will know, is the faith chapter of the Bible. Do you know what the last verse, next to the last verse of Hebrews 11 says? Hebrews chapter 11 describes all these people who did what they did by faith. And verse 39 says, Not one of them received what had been promised. Have you ever thought about that? These people in Hebrews chapter 11, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joshua, Sarah, Samuel, and the writer says, the world wasn't worthy of them. And yet at the end says, not one of them, not one of them received what was promised. You ask, well, what's going on? Most people, if they are promised something and they don't get it as they wanted it, will just say, well, I don't believe in God anymore. I don't have statistics to prove what I'm about to say, but if I were to guess, based upon my experience with people in the vestry, probably one out of ten, one out of ten, despite what happens, persist in faith. Nine out of ten, when they have something terrible happen, like that couple in Ashland, just stop going to church. Never find out what might have happened had they waited. Keep in mind that Hebrews chapter 11 is not a description of saving faith. They're already saved. Every one of them, they're saved. That's not the issue. It's persistent faith. That's what Hebrews 11 is about. Most people, when something tragic like this happens, they say, I don't want to go to church anymore. It's too much for them. But one out of ten break what I call the betrayal barrier. What's that? Well, in aviation in the 20th century, one of the greatest accomplishments was when aviation broke the sound barrier, when a plane could fly faster than the sp speed of sound. Great breakthrough. Breaking the betrayal barrier, however, is a greater feat than that. It's when you feel that God has turned against you, let you down, 
has deserted you, hasn't kept his word, you feel totally betrayed, but you say, God, I love you anyway. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But there are not many people like that. And people that don't break the betrayal barrier never find out what it would have been like had they pursued, had they persisted. Because I can tell you now, if you won't give up, you can break the betrayal barrier. You can do it and find out how real God is. And that's what happened to Hebrews chapter 11. Every one of them. You wonder, why is it that they didn't give up even though they didn't get what was promised? Oh, along the way they accomplished so much more than anybody would have thought. And God has a purpose in what He has allowed in your case. Well now, you are invited to break the betrayal barrier. And I can tell you what it's like. It's going for the gold. It's doing that which an exceedingly rare number of people do. And yet all of us can do it. All of us can do it. And if you are in your deepest trial, as I speak, or I can put it to you like this. If in World War II, when Hitler was bombing London, and Winston Churchill could come over the radio and say, we will never, 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 never give up. If he could do that, why can't we when things don't go right and God is testing our faith? Well now, here's my premise. God is perfect. He's pure. He's just. He's done no wrong, past, present, or future. But... He allows things to happen which we don't understand. Sometimes he appears not to keep his word. Sometimes it would look like he has broken his promises. Here's the question. Will you accuse God or will you let him off the hook? So, if he doesn't answer your prayer, he allows evil when he could have stopped it. You've been faithful to him and yet he appears to desert you in your time of need. You've watched wicked people thrive. and All good things happen to them and righteous people suffer. And you've prayed and read your Bible daily, but God hides his face and even the worst imaginable thing takes place. You ask the question, why? Well now, Habakkuk had four complaints. Number one, God does not answer his prayer. Number two, God looked the other way when violence came upon his people. Number three, God's own covenant people are having to endure injustice. And number four, God tolerated evil. Four complaints. But the same Habakkuk had a surprising breakthrough. And here's what it was. That God declares us righteous when we believe his word. And so God said to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I know the answer. 
and I'm going to give you the answer, but the answer speaks of the end. Oh, Habakkuk says, uh, that's not good enough. I want it now. I want to know now. I remember years ago when I was at Westminster Chapel, and there were two or three people here from Westminster Chapel. I won't start calling their names. It would embarrass them. Anyway, we were in a dark time once in the chapel, and some people didn't like decisions I'd made, and it was pretty hard. And my eyes fell on this verse in the dark hour from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. I loved it. And give relief to you as well. I said, thank you, Lord. And then I felt an impression, but, but keep reading. Oh, dear. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. I don't want have to wait that long. Can't you just deal with them now? Kill them now. No, it will happen in the end. And Habakkuk didn't like the answer, that it would speak of the end. And yet, something happened to him. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes, no fields producing food, no sheep, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice. That's going for the gold. He broke the betrayal barrier. Now, let me slightly change the subject. Only a fool would claim to know the reason God allows evil. It's the hardest theological question, it's the hardest philosophical question, the problem of evil. Only a fool would claim to know why. But that said, I'm going to have a go. And it is this. One of the reasons, one of the reasons God allows evil and suffering is that you might have faith. That you might believe. Listen carefully. There are two kinds of faith, two worldviews when it comes to faith. There's the secular view, seeing is believing. And there's the biblical view, believing without seeing. Now, the secular view is, I will believe it when I see it. Ever heard anybody say that? When I see it, I'll believe it. But that's not faith. You call it faith, but it's, it's no longer faith when you see and believe. Faith to be faith, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So the secular view is represented by the centurions at the cross. They said, Son of God, Son of God, come down from the cross so we can see and believe. Notice, see and believe. Had Jesus come down from the cross, they'd say, oh, I believe now, but then that would be seeing. To see and believe is not faith. Never will forget a breakthrough I had many years ago, early days at Westminster Chapel. I was reading the scripture. I was going to preach on Lazarus being raised from the dead. And as I read the scripture, 
I wish this would happen to me all the time. It doesn't, but it happened then. I saw something I'd never seen before. You see, here's the story that you that don't know it, you may be newly converted and you don't know this story. Lazarus was a close friend of Jesus. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha. One day, Lazarus fell deathly sick. So Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus, who was a long way off, said, your friend Lazarus is sick. Why did they do that? Well, they knew Jesus would stop what he was doing and come right to Bethany and heal Lazarus. Do you know he just stayed where he was? He showed up four days after the funeral. And after he got word, he said to the eleven disciples, he said, I can tell you now, Lazarus is dead. Oh, he's dead. Mm-hmm. Well, they couldn't understand either. Why didn't he go heal him? And here's the breakthrough I got. It's John eleven fifteen. Jesus said, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. In other words, had he gone and did, it, did, did everything they wanted, there would be no faith because Jesus could just do anything. Let's put it this way. Suppose every time you prayed, your prayer was answered. You pray, you're answered. You pray, you're answered. You pray, you're answered. After a while, this is not faith. You just think, you make, you make things happen. That's not faith. You need faith when you pray and you're not answered. And so, Jesus said to the disciples, Lazarus is dead, but I'm glad for your sakes that I didn't go so that you may believe. Let me put it this way. Have you ever thought about the privilege of faith? You won't always get to believe. One day, according to Revelation chapter 1 verse 7, every eye shall see him, they also which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. You will be there, by the way. It says, every eye shall see him. They also which pierced him. Unbelievers will be there. And it's going to be an, a moment when everybody cries, screams, yells. They'll lose all sense of dignity. Wouldn't matter whoever's next to them. When they see Jesus in the clouds, they say, oh, 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 God, I believe, I believe, I believe. Quite. Won't be faith then. You see, and then you believe. It's not faith. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Because now you can believe because you don't see. It's a great privilege. Well, the secular view of faith is when you see and believe. Let me ask you this question. I've asked this question before in this room. Do you know for sure if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And if you were to stand before God, and you will, and He were to ask you, He might, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Well, 
Habakkuk could have said, I'm not going to wait for that revelation. I want to know right now. But he said, it's okay. And he made a choice to live by the faithfulness of God. And God gave to Habakkuk something that he'd given to Abraham. You see, Abraham, when he counted the stars, and they ha he had no heir, Sarah was old, he was old, no chance of having a baby at their age. And God says, count the stars. And Abraham tried to count them, and God said, so will your seed be. Abraham could have said, don't tease me like that. You don't expect me to believe that. I believe. No, but it says he believed it. He actually believed it. Even though Sarah couldn't have a baby, he was too old. God says, so will your seed be. Abraham believed it. By the way, this is how you become a Christian. The reason that Jesus died on the cross is that if you trust the blood is shed, God counts you as righteous. You may say, well, that's nonsense. I don't believe that. You don't expect me to believe in trusting Jesus' death on the cross. You don't expect me to believe that, do you? Well, those who do are those that are counted righteous. Habakkuk got the same promise simply by his willingness to wait for God to give the answer on the last day. And he was counted righteous. Well, the question that I must deal with very quickly, how do you forgive God totally? Five things. One, be totally honest with God. Tell Him your complaint. It's okay to tell Him. He can cope with that. He doesn't want you to tell people. Don't shout to the world. Just say, God, I don't understand. He's okay about that. Second, Make a list of those things that you are truly thankful for. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. It will surprise you what the Lord has done. And psychologists have determined recently, so have medical people, statistically, thankful people live longer. And so, stop. Count your blessings. Number three, Fight self-pity and a feeling of entitlement with all your heart because giving in to those things just pleases the devil. Fourth, choose to believe that God has a purpose in what He permitted. And fifth, be willing to wait for things to become clear to you. When I was a boy back in Ashland, Kentucky, they used to sing the song, Someday He'll make it plain to me. Someday when I His face shall see. Someday from tears I shall be free. For someday I shall understand. We'll talk it over. In the by and by, I'll ask the reason, he'll tell me why. Remember that the devil does not want you to forgive God. The devil is the accuser. He not only accuses you, 
points out all about your past to make you think that you can't possibly please God or be a Christian. He's the accuser. He also accuses God. For that reason, don't give the devil pleasure by dignifying his hate toward God. You know, I don't understand the book of Revelation. This may shock you. Maybe Colin understands the book of Revelation. Don't know. I don't. I did when I was 19 years old. I had, had it all figured out. But today, 57, 58 years later, uh, no, that would be 50. I'm getting mathematically all confused. I'm 77. Anyway, when I was in college, I tried to teach the book of Revelation to my professor. I wouldn't do that today. But I've learned this much. I know this much. God wins. Satan loses. And those who have overcome by the blood of the Lamb will see the most glorious vindication in the history of the world. When every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There'll be no more death, crying, or pain. Dr. Michael Eaton, I see Jenny here tonight, said that it is a biblical principle that when God promises something but which does not apparently come to pass, you are given a temporary substitute which is in fact far better than what you initially wanted. So with every one of those persons in Hebrews chapter 11, they didn't get what was promised, but my word, they turned the world upside down. The world wasn't worthy of them. They had no complaints. You perhaps know the name Johnny Erickson Tata. Through a diving accident in America, she became a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down. People have prayed for her by the hundreds for her to be healed. But God says, I've got a better idea. Gave to Johnny Erickson Tata a ministry that reaches millions around the world. She told me she didn't want to be healed. What God had in mind for her was far better. Take Paul's thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was, but it was pretty awful. And Paul asked three times for it to go. And God says, what if I just give you a whole lot of grace? And Paul says, I'll take it. It was better than having the thorn removed. And when it comes to the healing of Lazarus, which didn't happen, when God said to his son, it's okay, now go to Bethany, because Jesus only did what the Father told him to do. And he gets there, and Mary and Martha, one after another, said, Lord, if you had been here, our brother wouldn't have died. They blamed Jesus for Lazarus' death. You know what is so sweet? He didn't rebuke them. He didn't moralize them. He didn't even say, shh, if you'll be quiet, I'll raise him from the dead in a minute. Just be quiet. No. He just wept with them. He wept. He knew that they didn't know what he was getting ready to do. Then after the right moment, he raised Lazarus from the dead, which showed there was a strategy all along in him showing up four days after the funeral. 
Remember this, dear friends. Whenever God says no to your prayer request, it's because he's got a better idea than what you had in mind. Raising Lazarus from the dead was nicer than keeping him from dying. That you can take to the bank. When God says no, it's because he's got a better idea. Rick Warren said, When I face any apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is due to my limited capacity. In other words, when the Scriptures seem to contradict themselves, the problem lies with my inability to understand, not because Scripture contradicts itself. That is the quintessence of breaking the betrayal barrier. When you affirm God, believing without seeing. Well, let me bring this word to a close. How do you break the betrayal barrier? What if you, here, have to come to terms with the fact that your most earnest prayer will not be answered? What if you come to terms with the fact that you're not going to be healed? What if you accept that you won't get married? What if you accept you won't get the reconciliation you wanted? What if you accept that the revival that you wanted isn't going to happen? What if you accept you won't have children? What if you accept that those people who won't forgive you will always hold a grudge? What if that faulty verdict from that uncaring judge will not be reversed? What if that enigmatic situation that has always bedeviled you will always remain an enigma? What if you will go to your grave unvindicated and the people out there will believe those lies? What if there will be no clarification of those difficult verses in the Bible. What if the prophecy given to you will remain unfulfilled? What if that disability that you've lived with won't go away? What if your nightmarish marriage will go on and on? What if you won't get the job you wanted? What if you won't get to live in the home of your dreams? Can you say, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will be joyful in God my Savior. The angels say to you, congratulations. You went for the gold. You've just received a gold medal. You've joined the big leagues. You've now entered the ranks of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joshua, Samuel, Pretty good company. 
Not only that, your anointing will be greater than ever here on earth. And then, on the last day, on the day God clears His name, and when it happens, let me tell you, no one will say, this is not fair. And when He clears His name, those who had done it all along will be saying, praise God, we stood by. We didn't know either, but it's okay. And He clears His name while others are made to see it. But it won't be faith then. And for those who cleared His name in advance, we're waiting till the end. And then Jesus looks at you on that day, right in your eyes as though there were no one else, says to you, well done. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? When I watch those gold medalists, it's such a wonderful sight when they stand there with their gold medal and the national anthem of their country starts to play. Some of them sing, some smile, some sob like babies. They can't believe it. And I wonder what it will be like when we stand before God and He says to you, well done. Will you cry? Will you shout? Or will you be able to speak at all? I just know this. That's going for the gold and receiving it. It doesn't get better than that. It's worth waiting for. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I ask you to take this word and apply this word by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.